Hello, language lovers, and welcome to the ninth episode of Life in a Second Language with your host, me, Spring Day. On this podcast, I talk to creative people from all over the world about what it's like to live, love, work, study, even raise a family in a second language, sometimes in adult language, so this podcast may not always be appropriate for young ears. Now, if you speak two or more languages, hopefully you can relate to what we get into on this podcast, or if you are thinking about jumping into the foreign language water for the first time. We can give you an idea of what you may be in for and let you know about some opportunities you didn't even know existed. In terms of my own second language study of Japanese, it's just not happening right now. And you know what? That's okay. That's totally fine. That is absolutely okay because it's good to take breaks every now and again. If you don't take breaks, you burn out. And if you burn out, you end up hating the very thing that you love to begin with. And that's not good for you or anybody else that you live with. Fortunately, I have been busy doing some good stuff because I had good news And that is a lovely change for the year 2020, the year that made 2016 hold their beer. And while the good news is here, I am going to soak it up as much as I can. I suggest that if you can find any bit of happiness, you hold on to that and you do not let it go no matter what. You know that's what Ruth Gator Ginsburg would have wanted you to do. Sure, I'll get back on the language learning horse in a week or two, but right now I'm just going to focus on the good that's right here, right now. Speaking of being in the moment, today's guest is the co founder of In the Moment Impro Workshops and the Tokyo Comedy Store, not to mention a well known video game voice actor, Chris Wells. As an American speaker of three languages, Chris Details on this show his experience studying abroad short and long term in multiple countries and how he paid for that. We'll talk about his advice for those thinking about studying a second language for the first time and why how you did in high school for a language class really doesn't matter a bit. I really hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. And now it's time for our interview with the amazing Chris Wells. Welcome and thank you so much for coming to the show.、Uh, our guest today is a very good friend and mentor of mine.、Uh, he is a workshop facilitator, communications expert, event moderator, NHK World TV show narrator. Nearly every train you've ever been on. In Japan, has his voice on it. He is one of the founders of the Tokyo Comedy Store and the current director of the Improvisilla show in Tokyo. And just an extraordinary person all the way around. Please welcome Chris Wells. Hey, Spring. <laughs> Whoa, what a bizarrely long list. Of... It's insane. How can、It、you is... have so many jobs in one body? How is that it possible? Is, it is crazy. That is 25 years of、uh, being a freelance guy in Tokyo and just kind of doing my own thing and saying yes to things when they showed up, when they met a certain number of criterion,、mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is that they were challenging and interesting. And、uh, yeah, so you just never know what, what you're going to wind up doing. So. The answer is always say yes and if the criteria say, fits. Exactly. Say yes and. But you have to have some judgment in there. Right. We start、mm. off with a life lesson. I love it. 
All right. So let's let's get to the questions and why we're here. What is your native language and what other languages do you speak? All right. My native language is English. And I learned that in Peoria, Illinois and Kansas City, Missouri. So I have a, a native Midwestern accent. Um, I speak Spanish fluently. I speak Japanese fluently. And I speak what I call first year German. Ooh, why do you yeah. say first year German? Because I just like, I hit a wall. I really only studied it for a year. And when I've been in Germany or Austria, I feel very confident with certain situations. And then I just hit a wall and it's like, oh yeah, there's nothing there. There's nothing else there because I haven't studied since I studied for one year. And it was, and that was one year I was living in Costa Rica. So I was studying German in Spanish, which was... Mm -hmm. Very interesting. The okay. textbook was in Spanish and German, and the instruction was in Spanish because I went to the Goethe Institute in uh, San Jose, uh, Costa Rica, and uh, that was an interesting, fun thing to do with my brain. What was your first foreign language, and how did that choice get made? So my first foreign language was Spanish, and the choice had to be made between Spanish, German, and French in my high school. In retrospect, I realized what a great high school I went to. As a public school um, in Peoria, Illinois, parenthetical note, really in Bartonville, Illinois, which is a small town contiguous to the border of Peoria. But if I say Bartonville, literally no one knows where that is. But Peoria, two hours south of Chicago, driving. Um, so I had to make a choice and just sort of discussing it um, around the dining room table. My mom said, and this turned out to be true, she said, well, in America, the chance to speak Spanish is all around, you know, mm. but French and German, not so much. Not to mention we have Mexico right there, Latin America right there. So she thought Spanish would be valuable work-wise. And that turned out to be true. I, I didn't really use it for work. Well, a couple of times I wound up using it for work in Kansas City. I did some interpretation, but uh, in my job as a drug counselor, not full-time in Spanish, but Anyway. So how old were you when you first started studying Spanish? So I would have been 14. This would have been okay. my sophomore year in high school. Did you dive right in? Did you love it immediately? Was it a struggle? It was a struggle because there was a lot of rote memorization. Mm -hmm. And I sort of rebelled against the rote memorization. Like you just had to do it to mm -hmm. get through it. And Mrs. Ratstatter, that was her name. That was the wow. teacher, Mrs. Ratstatter. And she would say, Ninos, memorize it and forget it for the test. Just memorize it and then you can forget it. You never have to think about it again. And I didn't realize until years later that she was using reverse psychology. Interesting. Because I never did forget it. Mm. You know, I never forgot it. You learn how to conjugate the verbs for the test and then you know how to conjugate the verbs. So while it was happening, I thought, that is not right. She should not be saying that. Yeah. So basically there was a lot. And now I'm glad because there was a lot of that rote just getting it down. It was tough. It did not come super easily because it was so divorced from the rest of my life. It was mm -hmm. only an hour or 50 minutes a day mm -hmm. in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. We didn't know any Spanish speakers. We didn't have friends that were Spanish speakers. There was nowhere for me to practice outside. Same as it would have been for French or German. But yeah, I cannot say that it went... I mean, I, li I liked... It was a class that I liked. Yeah, it wasn't just automatic and easy like English literature or science or something like that. So you had to study it in, in high school. 
but yes. you continued with it. When did you make the decision to keep with it? And when did it click? I knew I wanted to get a Bachelor of the Arts in psychology and mm-hmm. you need to choose a minor. And so I just thought I'll do Spanish. By that time, I knew that I actually did want to speak the language. Mm-hmm. And I knew that you just remember a few phrases and things from high school. You've never really had a conversation, right? Yeah. Um, and so I hadn't had that experience, but I thought, oh, maybe that would be cool mm-hmm. to actually be able to speak. So I chose uh, to continue in Spanish and then took, in, you know, in university, it's 101, 102, 201, 202, 301, 302. But my junior summer, it was, which means, wait a minute, in Japanese, as you well know, my, <laughs> my junior summer, I started my studying abroad, uh, my first study abroad. So I went to London mm-hmm. and studied for five weeks. Mm-hmm. And then that was dipping my toes in international waters. And I knew after that, I'm like, okay, I want to study in Spain. So I went and the next summer I studied in Spain. That was six weeks in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And it took... And okay, so this is some of the encouragement that I give people is before I went to Spain, I didn't speak Spanish, Mm -hmm. but I had memorized things, phrases, conjugating verbs, stuff like that. Just wrote memorization in that sort of way you do in school because you have to. Took maybe two weeks before something clicked and I was speaking full sentences because I was totally surrounded. You were studying Spanish history, studying the classes I took were a writing class in Spanish. Um, There was a history class. You were surrounded by Spanish speakers every day. And so just one day it just sort of clicked. And all of a sudden I could make sentences on the fly. Mm. And then from that moment on, I was hooked. And how old were you then? I would have been, let's see, um, that was university. So maybe 20? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember, because I could get wine, a little copa de vino with my plato del día, with the, you know, at the plate of the day, you, they give you a little thing of wine and you wouldn't have gotten served in America. That, that must have been really exciting, especially for an American. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I didn't like alcohol, so, but it was cool. It was like, oh, it's there. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. So yeah. when did uh, Costa Rica fit in? The summer programs were great, but they were really short length. So it was five weeks and six weeks, which actually... You know, five weeks in London, I knew the subway system by the time I left. I knew my way around. Six weeks in Madrid, I knew Madrid. Like, I could get around. And I guess it wasn't short, short, but it wasn't long enough. So I decided that I wanted to be an exchange student. And I definitely wanted to be an exchange student in a Spanish-speaking country. And I had a friend, Karen Cordell. She went to study as an exchange student her junior year in Germany. And she's still there. And it was a big hullabaloo. It was like, oh, she didn't come back. We had an exchange student not come back. You know, and that's like not done. You're supposed to come back. You're supposed to finish at that university. She wound up finishing in another university in, in Europe. But I thought, and Karen was a friend of mine. I thought, oh, that's what I will wind up doing. I need to be careful because I cannot see getting the experience of staying someplace for six months and then wanting to come back. I fulfilled my psych degree requirements in the four years. And then I did a fifth year of university as an exchange, one semester as an exchange student, which accomplished a couple things. One, I knew that I would then be able to graduate even if I didn't come back because I didn't need to go back to finish anything. Two, it was, I don't know why more people don't do this. You get student loans for it. And so it was launching me into my post-college career in a foreign country because I knew I would just figure out a way to stay. And that's exactly what I did. So I did, I took off a semester. It was summer. And then I took off the fall semester to work and save up money. And then I moved to Costa Rica. It was in um, after Christmas. So it was like the spring semester. So yeah, so I started my fifth year of university, but I knew 
after six months, I would just wind up finding a way to stay, which I did. I stayed two years. Wow. And were you a student the whole two years or were you working? No, I was working. So the first six months I was an exchange student. And the coolest thing was, is that I was a true exchange. Like I paid tuition for the brother of the family whose room I was staying in. A lot of exchange programs are really just, it's a pot, it's a pool and people trade and they go different places. But he was actually going to school in the States on my dime and I was going to school on his dime and I was staying with his family. He wasn't oh. staying with one family. I went to school in a different city, but it was kind of cool. That, um, oh wow, that's old school. Yeah, it was very old school. So I was staying in uh, Ricardo's room. Your uh, speakers of foreign languages will appreciate this. I resisted the urge to say Ricardo because you sound like an idiot if you do it too much in English. <laughs> you sound like <laughs> like you're putting something on, but his name is not Ricardo, it's Ricardo. Uh, but anyway, so uh, I was staying with um, a lovely family and I got to meet all their cousins and all the aunts and uncles. It was full-blown immersion from day one and my Spanish just really took off. Um, like really, really took off. And I was diligent as well. I would read the paper, I would read opinion essays in the paper, and I would write down all the vocabulary that I didn't know, you know, memorize it. And I still remember there are like words that I like tipere, which is um, hand puppet. And um, I remember that from a political essay that I read talking about how some politician was, uh, um, um, oh, a Mar Martinet? What? Even in English. Um, Mar Martin. A. Oh, a marionette. Marionette, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marionette, yeah. So I actually worked on it, but it made sense because when you're surrounded by it, you wake up in the morning to hola, buenos dias, and you go to bed to buenas noches, and you just have to survive. So yeah, the first six months I was an exchange student, and then um, and I took classes in Cartago, which is the city where I was living in, uh, which is about 45 minutes from San Jose, which is the main city. But I also arranged to have a class in San Jose at the university, the national university. I took a theater class there. So it was good. I got to get out of the smaller town and go to the big town. And I met some great people in the big town in San Jose. So, In my experience, when you, when you learn a, a foreign language, there's a period of time where you can function, but you're not, you don't really sound like yourself. Yes. Mm. Did speaking Spanish change your personality in any way? Latin culture is more my personality than Midwestern culture. I'm sort of like jovial and I like to socialize. I like to be expressive. So that part was a real big fit. But the sort of code switching is mm -hmm. very much there. I mean, it's like the gestures are different. The way you speak is different. All of that changed. And I'm a good mimic. Mm -hmm. So the mimicry aspect of it is there. It took me a while to get my sense of humor back. And that when I knew when I remember specifically, I'm around the, the dining table. It wasn't dinner, but it was um, a cafe. We were having coffee at two or three in the afternoon and my exchange brother and they're always joking with each other in this family asked me he was like it must have been a couple months after i've been there and he says in spanish chris i don't understand you've been in costa rica for two months why are you still white as milk and without even thinking i said in spanish like immediately i said I don't know why are you as fat as the cow that it came from, and <laughs> and everyone and what they said was they said se defiende se defiende he can defend himself he can defend himself and they're doing that snapping thing with their hands which I never learned how to do it's really hard um, yeah. where you snap one finger against the others yeah I can't do it I didn't realize that's yeah, what they were doing when they're doing this it's like. It's either this finger, I've said in a podcast. The first finger your, and the... the first finger against your second finger. I think mm -hmm. that's what it is. And you you make your first finger... You shake it. So that it 
snaps and hits and makes a noise against your second finger. But anyway, I remember, I specifically remember that. It's like indelibly. And then after that, I got witty in Spanish. And I got, I could be myself and I could joke and I could tease people and I could do all of that. And that was, that was cool. And then because my exchange cousin was a gay guy and Mm -hmm. we met at like a family party when everyone was introducing everyone. And then he called me up and we went out to Pizza Hut of all places, but that's a very, it's like a high level, you know what I mean? That's an expensive place to go. Right. So we went to Pizza Hut and then, I mean, I very clearly, I like my gator worked on him and, and his dis- did as well. He's like, yeah, right. So we're gay. So what's the deal in Costa Rica? Like, what's the deal? I'm in a Catholic country. The year is 1990. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this is way before, you know, the gay rights had really hit. I mean, it was, it was there in Costa Rica, but so that was great because I had someone in the family mm-hmm. who was also gay. So he like showed me the rogues. He took me to the gay disco, introduced me to his friends. So then that's another linguistic thing, which is that I got to learn all of the expressions that the gay people at that time were using. Mm. So there's just a ton of, a ton of different things that are probably very outdated now because this is now 30 years ago. But that part of it was really fun as well because there's, you know, there's a whole sort of subculture that you learn about. You stayed for two years. Were you tempted to stay longer or even forever? I wasn't. At that time, I was not um, because I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school Mm -hmm. and I could have gone to graduate school there, but I wanted to go in the States and I wanted to use my psych degree and actually experience some of that. And then, oh, but before uh, graduate school, I knew that I wanted to learn a third language. So I wanted to study a language and German was there, but I wanted to learn a non-European language. So I had in my mind, even in Costa Rica, the idea that I wanted to move to Japan Mm -hmm. and study Japanese before going to graduate school. And so you went to Japan soon after Costa Rica? Yeah, I went, I I moved back to Kansas City for two years and I worked as a drug counselor, case manager, assistant thing. It's like case worker. I can't remember the exact state classifications. Anyway, it was at a state hospital and it was for the MICA program, mental illness, chemical addiction. Mm-hmm. So, oh, now I remember clinical caseworker assistant level one. That's what oh, I was. That sounds so official. It's very official. You have ranking and everything in the state. Um, so working under a PhD candidate um, and a MA uh, nurse, mm-hmm. we had clientele that was primarily indigent and they were people with a drug addiction problem and uh, mental illness. So I did that for two years. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got called in a couple of times to interpret for people. Uh, Because I've talked to a few people that have have interpreted before. It sounds like in the beginning, being an interpreter sounds like so much fun and almost carefree job when you first think of it as a career option. But in actuality, it's quite stressful and intimidating in cases, depending on the subject matter. How did you find interpreting well for me it was it was short it was like intake at the hospital so it was i had registered with the hospital as someone who could do interpretation and it was it made me feel really good because i was able to help this woman like i was able to help her like what's the problem you know the doctor's asking and i'm interpreting and so it was easy and it all made sense and it wasn't like i was it wasn't an engineering talk or something that would be difficult Ooh, i did some yeah i did some translation as well that was bocina acoustic I still remember bolsina acústica, which is like sonic horn. Um, like I never wanted to know that word in Spanish. That taught me more than the interpretation at the hospital. That was fine, but 
but the job of translating some technical documents made me realize that I didn't want to be translated because it's tedious. It's tedious technical work. And yeah, and nor would I want to be an interpreter. I do it on family trips, you know, with people that don't speak the language, you know, where we're at and that's fine, but I wouldn't want to do it for a living. So you, after two years of being in Kansas City, you moved to Japan as a student? No, as a teacher. I moved to Japan uh, to teach English as a second language. I got a job teaching it at a, a company that did corporate English classes. So they were sending you to Nike, Tokyo Gas, stuff like that. It was, it was cool. Mm -hmm. And then, but I was studying immediately. So I went to the Franciscan Institute in Roppongi, mm -hmm. which is right next to the American embassy. And that's where oh. the American diplomats would study. Wow. So it got recommended to me by a friend whose sister worked at the embassy. And I jumped right in nine hours a week. And I was in like three months time, I could speak more Japanese. And I'm not bragging. I just mean a low, a, a tiny amount of Japanese but much more than people who had been there two years who had never done that. Because people think that they can have just absorbed Japanese. And as you well know, Japanese is not a language you're going to absorb. No. It's not like moving to Italy and learning Italian or something. It's, yeah, it's a totally different language. Yeah, totally different immersion experiences as well. Totally and different. I've never had an immersion experience here. I hadn't thought of that because you're, you primarily work in English at the yeah. moment but you do also you do all of your moderating jobs in english japanese and, and occasionally spanish is that right yeah so i do english and japanese so i've moderated fully in japanese before and then everything around all the work is in japanese so mm -hmm. talking to the agents talking to the clients and all that radio shows like for nhk tv shows all of the talk is in japanese but it's never been that the product like what i'm selling has been in japanese like i'm always selling my ability to speak in english unless it's japanese moderation so yeah and, I, and i've never stayed with an exchange family here it's it's never been an immersion a total immersion experience i've always had foreign friends that speak english so even though i have japanese friends it's like it's never been you know 100 like in costa rica 100 spanish day in and day out you know as someone who's multilingual and you speak three languages fluently, I've always felt as a Japanese speaker that whenever I hear Spanish, it just really messes with my head because I want to interpret it as Japanese because the yeah. vowel sounds are very similar. Did you find any hurdles because you already spoke a foreign language learning Japanese? No, I only found benefit. So specifically in... A couple of different areas. One, I just ported my Spanish pronunciation to Japanese, mm -hmm. and it made me immediately sound better than someone who didn't have that ability. Mm -hmm. So, right? That's the aiueo, that's what Spanish is. It's aiueo. So, instead of saying domo arigato, mm -hmm. I would say domo arigato, right? Immediately, I sounded a little bit closer to what Japanese is. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing was, you know, going into your second or third language, I mean, your, your third or fourth language, one, two, three, yeah, your third or fourth language, you know, you need to learn everything. Like, seriously, you need to learn it. You need to know how to say this or that. So I wasn't questioning like I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Like, I really need to know this. I would, I just knew like, oh yeah, you, you're going to need to know this. So 
yeah, I found that to be good. And when, like, for example, visiting in Costa Rica, it <laughs> it lets you do fun things like at a family party with my exchange family. My mom is there and my husband, June, who's Japanese, and I'm sitting between them and their mom is talking to someone and June is talking to someone else in Spanish and having to interpret for two conversations at once. It did make it easier to talk in English on to my left and Japanese to my right to keep those threads separate. So you use your your physicality left and right to kind of keep things straight. Yeah, I mean, more than that, it was the language. It was the mm. taking the Spanish from on one side into English and on the other side into Japanese kept the threads separate. Not that you want to do it for very long. I mean, it was like a party situation and I didn't set it up. I just sort of noticed like, you know, mom was like, oh, Chris, can you translate? And I'm like, okay. And then I noticed like June was having trouble talking to someone over here. So I'm like, oh, okay, let me go over here. I mean, he speaks English, but it was just easier to do it that way. Did alcohol help this situation at all? <laughs> we wouldn't, we weren't drinking. My exchange family doesn't really drink. Really? Drink a lot. Yeah. It was a day thing. So we were over there for lunch and yeah, there was no alcohol. Do you still study any of these languages? I mean, do you yes. top up? Like, how, And how do you do that? Yeah. So um, topping up in Spanish is usually uh, Spanish podcasts or Spanish audiobooks mm. or listening to Spanish TV shows on Netflix. And that's not really serious vocabulary study. I haven't for Spanish. I haven't done that in a long time. It's just listening and making sure I understand. That's basically it. You know, if uh, if there's a word you don't understand, then you can look it up. And then with Japanese Definitely, it's still a learning process. I've been here 25 years, but I still, there's so much that I don't know. You know, it's just like, you listen to the news and there's just tons of stuff I don't know. I'm like, God. Oh. Um, so for Japanese, it's uh, just no formal study for years and years because I, I just can't be bothered. It's like right. when you get to the point where you're, you speak fluently and you're okay in any situation, except when you would be asked to be a professional translator. And that doesn't happen because I do not do that, then sort of the impetus kind of decreases a little bit. You're not, you're not as, you know, uh, you're not going full board the way you were when you first got here. So right. I'm, I'm lazy. I'm, I'm, I will admit it. I'm totally lazy in Japanese. That's why I always say like, you know, my Japanese is good. But it's mm -hmm. not great. That's mm -hmm. what I, that's what I tell people. I'm like, well, no, I speak good Japanese. Yeah. Like, like I'm like, blah, 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 blah. it's not great though. Cause yeah. I got friends that speak great Japanese. You speak great Japanese. Your, your vocabulary is definitely more than mine in Japanese. That's very kind of you. It, it just it depends on what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it is domain-specific, right? Yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. domain-specific. Do you feel, being multilingual as you are, how has it changed you? How, what, what kind of effect has it had on you ultimately? It has had a big effect in that I don't buy the... American centric view of the world. When I was in Costa Rica in 1990, if you remember, that was, I think that was the Gulf War. We could go back mm -hmm. and check, but I believe it was the Gulf War. And I was, I would watch things on CNN and then I would read things in La Nacion, the newspaper of Costa Rica in Spanish. And you just realize like what bullshit puffery the CNN reporting on the war was. I mean, it's like cheerleading. Mm. And then in La Nacion, you read you know, it's a serious thing that's happening. It is not rah, 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 go, go, go. You know, it was reported completely differently. So that, and then being able to speak to people about politics, about when 
you know, when the U.S. invaded Panama and the people that died and they're, you know, having a Panamanian friend whose family was affected. And, you know, like there's a lot of, um, and you were talking about uh, Guatemala before we started the um, recording, but Nicaragua, Guatemala, the fact that the U.S. was funding rebels there and responsible for the death of tens of thousands of people, or at least complicit in it. Not that it wasn't a shit show before, right? on the wrong side. So that, and I wasn't politically naive when I, when I left America, but it definitely shows you that you're seeing things through a certain lens and seeing things through the Japanese lens does the same thing where you just see, Oh, there's a totally different way, different assumptions that people are making. Um, Sometimes you don't agree with them. You know, as you know, in Japan, like some of the assumptions, it's just kind of hilarious, you know, like, so such broad brushstrokes that the Japanese take with other countries and everything. And and for anyone who's saying, but Americans do that too. It's like, (laughs) you have no idea. Um, (laughs) So true. um, Right. And it gives you a basis of saying, you know, when, you know, there are cultural differences. So you have two types of understanding. One is that people are people and they just want to have a good life and they just want to live their life without having to think about politics. That's the most privileged situation in the world. And they want to raise their kids and they want to have friends. And so you know that really deeply on a, on a level that's not theoretical, mm-hmm. um, and not filtered through the people speaking your language. So when mm-hmm. I go to my mother-in-law's house and I'm sitting around with my Japanese family, it's not filtered for me. It's just, I'm just listening to what they're talking about. And, oh, that's, this is what it is. When people are speaking a foreign language for you, then there's a filter. There's something different. There can be something sort of performative about it. Uh, so it's, you know, especially like with Japanese, the omotenashi thing of being hospitable, mm-hmm. then you're sort of playing a role with the foreigner. You're the guide. You're showing them around in English and stuff like that. They're very different in, in Japanese. Right. Very hospitable as well, though, you know. Mm-hmm. So I would say those are two big differences. And then that was more like intellectual and inside my mind. And then in terms of the way I move in the world, it is, uh, it's wonderful to have a language that's spoken in different countries. Mm-hmm. And obviously Japanese is not that. This is more on the Spanish side. Um, so last summer when I went to Buenos Aires and taught a workshop, I do a, a workshop called Punching Up, which is about humor with and about minorities and ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all about discrimination and jokes about minorities and ethnic groups. And I was able to do that in uh, Spanish, unfiltered, with no interpreters. And that brings you closer to the students and just makes it such a rich experience. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that's very cool. Um, so I highly recommend it. On that note, if someone were to say, okay, this has inspired me to study uh, a second language for the first time, as an adult, which is, yeah. I think, is a very humbling experience, especially as an adult, to do. Uh, yes. What advice would you give that person? I would say don't buy into the idea that adults can't learn foreign languages because it's not true. Um, and don't compare yourself to the plasticity of a teenager. That's It is true that they'll have an easier time of it, but that doesn't matter because you are you. And I would also say to anyone who failed because of the traditional schooling system, you don't know whether or not you're good at learning foreign languages until you immerse yourself in a country in that language. You do not know. Mm. I'm good at languages. You never would have thought that in high school. I never would have thought that in university until I actually went there did I discover, oh, I'm, I'm, 
I'm a bit of a mimic. Oh, my accent's People talk about how good my accent is. That wouldn't have come up if I hadn't actually lived there because I wouldn't have been exposed. So I would say to people like lay the foundation by taking classes, whether it's at a community college or using one of the programs that you can use. But then as quickly as possible, do a study abroad. I mean, they have them for adults, you know, like there are places all over where you can go and study for two weeks on vacation and do that so that you can feel what it's like and that will continue to motivate you. I like that advice. It's really, really good advice. Uh, now, I know you're a techie and you're probably my techie dealer, if I'm honest, because if you have bought it and you use it and you like it, that is a high thing on my list to get next. So have you used any foreign language apps? I have. I've used um, Duolingual, mm-hmm. which I enjoy. I think it's it's fun. I like the gamification of it. For Japanese, I've used the oh, what is it called kanji box it's been a few years since i pulled this one out actually um kanji is my the, my bet noir i just i do not enjoy the whole kanji thing it drives me crazy it's ironic because like i i like puzzles and i like learning foreign languages and it's magical when you do understand kanji it's like right. amazing like i'm always reading the subtitles and i'm yeah. always like oh wow and it's weird when you're watching something and German or something, and the Japanese subtitles make more sense to you than listening to the German. Like, oh, that always freaks me out. I'm always like, whoa, that's weird. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you would think that that would motivate me, and I'd be like, yay. But um, I can't remember. I think it's called Kanji Square or something. And it's one of those uh, algorithmic programs where it's a flashcard program. So it's keeping track of the ones that you know. You say whether you know it, you got it down pat, kind of knew it, didn't know it at all. Mm-hmm. And then it's feeding you those uh, according to an algorithm that will help you remember it. Oh, the other thing I would, oh, well, that's yeah. more of a, uh, there's two things, but it's kind of like, if you're just starting out, it's probably not s- as helpful. One, audiobooks. Mm-hmm. So when you do have, you know, a couple years under your belt, then grab a book that you read and loved in English, get the audiobook in the language that you're targeting, and then uh, listen to it, and you can listen to it with the English book um, open, so you're following along, and so you know what's going on there um, in foreign language, Then you can repeat out loud. Then the other thing I was going to say uh, was, what was the other thing I was going to say? Was, and then something else which is gone right now, I'll get back to it. Now, we're, we're down to our last two questions. Uh-oh. Okay. Oh my gosh, time has so, flown by, spring. It really has, it really has. Uh, so the first of the last two questions uh, is what language do people speak in heaven? The answer is no language because there is instantaneous understanding of the yeah. other person. So in heaven, there is no language and there is just an understanding, an emotional telepathic understanding of what's going on, which is what you achieve in long-term friendships and long-term relationships. Mm. which is the closest to heaven that I can imagine when you're so in tune with someone else that you just sort of know what's going on. Not that you don't need to talk, but when you do have that, that's a really good thing. That's an amazing answer. I love that answer. And what language do people speak in hell? Um, Everyone in hell speaks a different language, indecipherable to everyone else. So it's an airport. 
really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but there's no recognizing any of the languages. There's no recognizing any of it. And there's it's indecipherable. So there's no Rosetta Stone. There's no way of learning or getting into that foreign language. And it's if there's like a million people, it's a million different languages. Wow. And in that voice, it sounds kind of chilling. I, guess. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even put on a voice. I know, but it was just calm, kind of, this is how it is. And I believe it. You have an authoritative voice, Chris. And uh, There's a million different people, and each of them speak their own language, indecipherable to everyone else. No one can understand a single other person. And that would be hell. There we go. <laughs> I am so not going to sleep ever again. Uh, this has been amazing. Thanks, Chris, so much for doing this. It was my pleasure, Spring. It's always great to talk to you. And that is, as you know, that's one of my favorite subjects is languages. So it was my pleasure. I hope to have you back soon. I would love to be back. All right. Talk soon. Okay. Ciao.